Well, you guys can turn to Isaiah chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning as we talk a little bit about Christmas and about Advent. Advent is the fancy name for the candle lighting that we just did. I don't know if you're familiar with, with what that is. Advent, it actually comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And so in Advent, what we're doing is for typically in most churches, for the four Sundays before Christmas, we are celebrating through lighting candles and reading scriptures the coming of Jesus the first time when he came to earth 2,000 years ago. We're also celebrating that he's coming again for us in the future. Now, the reason that we have that whole Advent thing rather than just Christmas is to give us some time. So those, those four Sundays where we can kind of prepare our mind and, and clear our minds to focus on Jesus. And we need that. That, that. that whole idea of Advent is meant to be a gift to us to give us enough time to clear away the distractions and focus on Jesus as, as the center and meaning of, of this whole Christmas holiday. But that's tough to do, right? Because there's a lot going on. During Christmas, for most of us, we have a million things going on. And I was trying to figure out how do you represent all the things going on in our culture, in our lives, in our town during Christmas? I don't know if you're familiar with the concept of a word cloud. It's generated by an app or a program on a computer. It, it goes and scrubs the internet and finds all the words that people are using around something. So in this case, Christmas. And it graphically represents all of those words. And the size of the word is relative to how frequently people are on the internet are using that word to describe the thing. So here is a Christmas word cloud for you. Let's see if we can get this to advance. There we go. And on this Merry Christmas word cloud, you'll notice under the word Christmas, Jesus is there. So, hey, that's great. But it is interesting to me that he's the same size as the word pudding, which I don't really understand. (laughs) I've never really gotten the concept of Christmas pudding. Maybe someone can explain that to me. And he's much smaller than Santa Claus and elves. And so that's a pretty good representation of the kind of things we have going on in our culture. There's so many words that are not Jesus that are filling our minds, our airwaves, in our time. And so this morning, what I wanted us to do is I wanted to kind of imagine what would God's word cloud be for Christmas. So if you have Jesus kind of at the middle of God's word cloud, we're at church, I think we can all agree that's what God would do. Jesus right in the center, what are the other words around it? And so to answer that question, I want us to go to the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at one of the most famous passages that we read at Christmas time. I'm sure you've seen it before, the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. And from these seven verses, I want to give you six words that I think God would give us in a word cloud around Jesus for Christmas. So six key words to describe Christmas from God. So if he wanted you to to clear your mind and focus on just these six things. So they'll come either directly or indirectly from this passage. So Isaiah chapter 9, if you're reading with me, let's pick it up in verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So of these seven verses, verse 6 is the really famous one. Verse 6 is the one we read every year at Christmas time. This was written about 700 years before Jesus showed up. So this is an amazing prophecy about Jesus. The whole passage is about him. And like I said, I think there are six words that jump out of this to help us understand the meaning and significance of Christmas. Some of those words are directly spelled out in this passage. Some are implied. So let's jump right into these six words that God wants us to to focus on this Christmas. The first word that comes to my mind when I read this passage is the word humiliation. Now that one might be a surprise. You might be wondering, what, where, Blake, are you seeing humiliation? It's not stated directly. But it is implied very clearly in verse 1 by this reference to Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, you, you may not know that. Ancient Jews would have seen this as a humiliating thing. So let me explain it to you a little bit. When I came to Texas A&M about 25 years ago to study at, uh, at Texas A&M, um, this town felt very small to me. So it wasn't nearly as big as it is now, but back then it, it felt really small because I came from North Houston. So Houston has millions of people. It's like this massive metroplex. I come to College Station and all I see is like cows and cotton as far as the eye can go. And, and it felt like a really small nowheresville kind of town. And whenever I felt like I was living in the middle of nowhere, I would remind myself, well, at least I'm not at Texas Tech. Because <laughs> Lubbock is in the middle of a desert. It really is nowheresville. Well, that's exactly the kind of mindset that was going on in Israel when they heard those words, Zebulun and Naphtali. Because Israel in Jesus' day was kind of like College Station today. It was nowheresville. It was small. Compared to major nations on earth like Egypt or Italy or Greece, it was a small thing. And even if you lived in Jerusalem, which was the capital city of Israel, you still felt kind of small compared to the people who lived in like Rome or, or Antioch or Alexandria, these massive cities. And so living in Israel in ancient times, you would feel like you were kind of in nowheresville, but then you would remind yourself, well, at least I don't live in Zebulun or Naphtali. They were like the Lubbock of their day. Now those two words... Zebulun and Naphtali, they refer to the two least significant tribes out of the 12 tribes of Israel. So out of the 12 tribes, there's some that are famous, like Benjamin and Judah. People tend to know those tribes. They name their kids after those tribes. I don't know of anyone who names their kids Zebulun or Naphtali. Those are two of the least significant tribes in terms of what happened among those tribes. In fact, most of the times that the 12 tribes are listed in the Bible, Naphtali comes last. So these are really fairly insignificant tribes in Israel, and they were far from the capital city of Jerusalem, and they were populated by a lot of Gentiles, not, not just Jews. So they were hardly even part of Israel anymore. And so the whole point of all of this is that if you were looking for a king, you would never look for that king in Zebulun or Naphtali. 
They were far too small, far too insignificant, poor and tiny, too humble for a king to grow up there. And yet everything, else, everything, everything about the birth and, and childhood of Jesus was humiliating. I mean, if you think about his birth for a moment, what do we know about his birth? Well, he was born in poverty and filth. He was laid in a feeding trough for animals that would have been dirty and, and awful. We know that he was born to a woman who would have been living in disgrace. You, you see, the town didn't, didn't understand the whole virgin birth thing. So they thought that Mary had gotten pregnant out of wedlock. So she would have been shamed in her culture. And so everything about this first Christmas that we look at, and it's so beautiful and, and so cute and so fuzzy and warm, it would have been humiliating in the early context. And when Jesus actually showed up, he showed up in the middle of humiliation. And, and for us, I think that's a really important reminder that no one who's ever lived except Jesus got to choose their birth. Like you're just born wherever you're born. Jesus got to choose. He got to say, I will be born here at this time in this context. And he chose this. And, and what that tells you about your God, about Jesus, is he really cares nothing for all the wealth and all the power and all the fame that this world offers. Because he turned it all down. And instead he chose to identify uniquely with those who are poor. Those who are living in humiliation and poverty and shame. Ridiculed by the world. That is where God chose to show up on earth. And so when we think about that first Christmas. The first word that I want to come to our mind is humiliation. Our savior chose humiliation. He chose poverty. He chose shame. For us. Second word that I want to jump out to us. This one is explicitly stated in the text in verse 2. It's the word light. Look with me again at verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So it's repeated twice, this, this word light. That's common imagery that the Bible gives for the arrival of Jesus on earth. He's often described as light, not just here in Isaiah as a great light, but in John chapter 1, very famous passage, Jesus is the light of men. John chapter 8, he's the light of the world. So very often, God describes the arrival of Jesus as light. Why does he do that? What's the, the connection there? Well, you just need to think about what it's like to walk around your house at night in pitch black. For me, it's terrifying because I have children who leave their stuff everywhere. And, and there are a few things worse than stepping on a Lego Ninjago in the middle of the night. I mean, they have little swords. That, it's just awful. It's torture. Well, walking in the dark at night is a scary thing, often a painful thing. And that's exactly what it's like for people who are walking through life in spiritual darkness. People who don't yet know God and know God's truth. They are stumbling through life, not knowing where they're going, not knowing why they're here. They don't have a sense of purpose. They don't have a guide to help them. That leads to a life of anxiety and fear. And God didn't want us living in anxiety and fear. And so he sent his son Jesus to be our light. And, and that's exactly what Jesus is. He is your light to guide you through life. Do you want to know how to make it successfully through your life? Just read about Jesus. Just follow him. Just do what Jesus did and you'll be great. He is your light to guide you through life, to help you know what is right, what is good, 
what is true, what is proper, what helps other people, what leads to success in my life. Just do what Jesus did. He is your light to show you the right way to navigate this light. So everyone who follows Jesus walks in the light. When you do what Jesus did, you are walking in the light. Even if you feel confused, even if you feel like you're struggling, you are walking in the light when you follow him. And that's the reason that so many uh, traditions and practices in Christmas deal with lights. So when you decorate your house with lights, when you decorate your tree with lights, when you light candles, that, that's actually, if you look back at the history thing, that's not meant to just be decoration. There's a, a theological truth there. You are showing your neighbors, you're showing the world that we believe on that first Christmas, ultimate light came to the world. A light that that casts out darkness, a light that guides us home, a light that shows us how to make it through life well. And so it is actually really good. It can be a really spiritual thing. When you put out all these lights at Christmas, you are declaring the ultimate light has come to show me how to make it through life well. So God sent Jesus to be our light. That's our second word to describe Christmas. Third word, and again, this one is stated explicitly in the text, the word gladness. Look at verse 3 again. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. So the word's repeated three times there in, in one verse. It's really a very important word to God. What does gladness mean? It's kind of a trite Word. Biblically, gladness means pure joy or jubilation. It's not just a, a feeling of like warmness or contentment inside your soul. It's, it's jubilation. It's exhilaration. So I, tr- I was trying to think like what, what is a really clear time that like maybe a whole lot of us felt jubilation together? And one of those that I distinctly remember to this day is watching A&M beat Alabama. So I don't know how many of you watched that game. It's 2012 for reference. We won 29 to 24. And there were a lot of good moments in that game. But there was one in particular. I don't know if you remember. It was about a minute 30 left in the fourth quarter. We intercepted the ball. And I was alone in my living room watching this game. I shouted. I jumped up and I shouted. And if you know me, you know like that's not really Blake's thing. But I wasn't showing off. There was no one there to see me do that. That was just pure joy. That was jubilation. That was exhilaration. That's this word. That pure expression of joy that you feel. That you, it's, it's so powerful you can't control it. You're not thinking, I should jump up now. I should scream now. It just happens. It just comes out of you. That's what God wants associated with Christmas. Now the problem is for most of us, we don't feel that way when Christmas comes. We still feel a great deal of stress, a great deal of, of sadness. For a lot of us, we talked about this last week, the holidays are actually one of the saddest parts of the year. We feel lonely. We feel acutely the loss of relatives who've died or friends who passed away. We feel sad because we had this high hope of what Christmas would be and it doesn't live up to that. And so Christmas, this side of heaven, often is, is full of disillusionment and sadness and loneliness. And, and that's okay, because when God tells us that gladness is connected to Christmas, he means what you're going to feel. 
When Christmas is everything God intends, when you are celebrating Christmas with Jesus, which is really what what Christmas is going to be about in the future, you're going to celebrate it with Jesus. And then you're going to have the Christmas that really you've always known that you've wanted. Christmas in this life, it always falls short, even if it's just a little bit, never lives up to what you know it should have been. That's because you're not with him yet. But you will be. You will be with Jesus one day. And when you are, and it's time to celebrate Christmas, you will be on your couch again as A&M beats Alabama. It'll be that moment. It'll be that jubilation, that incredible exhilaration of joy, because that's what Christmas is meant to be, this unending celebration of incredible joy. So gladness is the next word. That's what God intends for us. It's okay if you don't feel it now. You will. It's a promise. Fourth word that God wants us to associate with Christmas is the word peace. That word is stated explicitly in, in towards the end of the passage we read, verses 6 and 7, but it's described in verses 4 and 5. So what does peace look like? Look with me again at verses 4 and 5. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. So Christmas is about the arrival of a person who would bring complete and unending peace to earth. Such complete peace that will never need soldiers again. And that's ultimately what's going on here. So when it talks about boots being burned and cloaks being burned, it's because no one ever needs them again. No one will ever need the implements or outfit of a soldier when Jesus comes again. There'll be no soldiering to do. There'll be no enemy left. There'll be no oppressor left. There will be complete and unending peace. So let me, let me try to illustrate kind of what we're going with here. So um, I was a child of the 80s, so I, I grew up, kind of became aware of the world in the 80s during the Cold War. So the Cold War, for those of you who were not born yet, uh, the Cold War was a time when the United States and the Soviet Union had reached a stalemate, not through uh, the, the use of peace, but through the use of nuclear weapons. They each had so many ICBMs, intercontinental ballistic missiles, pointed at each other that they had created a scenario called mutually assured destruction which meant if either of them was attacked, they had enough weapons to make sure both were completely annihilated from the face of the earth. That is the peace I grew up under. It's really terrifying as a child of the 80s to know at any moment somebody pushes a button, all life is over. And yet I remember walking my grandparents' farm one day when I was, was a child, again in the 80s, and walking upon a fence post that was held up by a really bright, shiny, big metal disc. It looked completely out of place. It was in just beautiful disc. And I asked my grandpa what it was, and the answer surprised me. It was the titanium inlet nozzle off the rocket engine of an ICBM. You see, he had helped design rocket engines back in the 50s and 60s, and this was a leftover part. And so he used it to prop up a fence post. It worked well, never rusts. And, and I look back at that today and I think that's, that's what I want, right? That's what we want. We want such peace to come to earth that there will be never a need for an ICBM again. Such peace that all we can do with them is like melt them down and make fence posts out of them. That's exactly what Jesus is promising. Let me show you what this looks like in Isaiah chapter 2. God says, they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. The peace that Jesus is going to bring when he returns is so complete 
that we will melt down every Abrams tank, every M16, every ICBM, and we'll turn them into farming implements. We'll turn them into tools with which we can shape and beautify creation. Jesus is bringing such a complete peace. Notice the line again. Never again will they learn war. There will be no army, navy, marines. There'll be no one who learns how to fight. There will be no violence. There'll be no police officers. There will never be a need to even train somebody how to fight because violence will be at a complete and utter end. Jesus is bringing complete and total peace to the world when he comes back and will last forever. And that's the hope that we walk around with on Christmas. We remind one another, yes, the world is a scary place right now. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of oppression. That's not eternal. That will pass. Jesus is going to come. And when he comes, he will bring such complete peace that no, no weapons will ever be made again. No one will even know war again. Or there will be no need for police officers again because there will be perfect, unending peace on earth. That's really good news. That's the hope that we're reminded on Christmas. So, peace. God wants us to associate peace with Christmas. Next word that God has for us. The word present. Now, notice there's not an S on the end. This is not presence like you wrap up and put under the tree. This is present, meaning to be here with us. Present, it's an adjective. To to be here with us, among us. Us. That's what's going on in verse 6. So look with me again at verse 6. Most famous verse in this passage. For a child will be born to us. Here among us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So a, a child will be born to us. That's telling us when Jesus showed up. He, he was human in every way. He was born like a child, like any other. There was no miraculous, oh, he shows up in full-grown form. No, he was born like a normal human. But he is not just merely a normal human. And, And you know that because of the title, Mighty God. Now, the other three titles that are around it are big titles, but they're not as big as Mighty God. Let me explain each of these just in case you're wondering. Wonderful counselor, that actually means like a a great military leader, a great strategist. He knows how to bring war to an end once and for all. So that describes Jesus, but that could just describe a human, a really great military strategist. The next title, Prince of Peace. That means a ruler who will bring perfect peace to earth. Again, a great title, but that still could just describe a human. Then you have eternal father. That's a big one, but just a clarification. At this point in the Old Testament, father didn't mean first member of the Trinity. They didn't know that yet. So father actually was often used to describe the Davidic king. It means a great king who will rule forever. So again, you could just have a human here. I mean, it's still pretty amazing stuff, but could be a human until you get to mighty God. And that one doesn't fit any human. That one is a clearly divine title. And, and you see God there. When you see the word mighty, that's meant to take you back to Genesis 1. When you saw ultimate might displayed. How did God create the universe? In the most mighty way possible. He didn't roll up his sleeves. He didn't pull out his tools. He didn't start with any raw materials. He simply spoke. That's power. You speak and the universe spins into existence. That's the might of Jesus. 
So Jesus has that creator, that almighty power. He is God in human flesh. And so when we think about this word present, what we're trying to talk about is, is Christmas is the time, this moment when this unthinkable thing happened. The almighty creator God became present with us. We have a word to describe that. It's the word Emmanuel. It means God present with us. A lot of people think Emmanuel is a name. Technically, it's not. It actually literally is a title. It means God present with us. On that first Christmas morning, Jesus took on human flesh. He was fully God and became fully man. He was and is God present with us. And that's significant for a lot of reasons, far more than I could cover this morning. I just want to give you one reason why it's important that on that first Christmas, God chose to be present with us. You find this reason in Hebrews chapter 4, really significant passage. The author says, For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. Jesus, the Son of God, second member of the Trinity, when he took on human flesh, he made something possible. What that is, is that God could sympathize with our weaknesses. God doesn't just have knowledge of your weaknesses. He's experienced them. And you see that in Jesus. God himself choosing to humble himself and and experience our weaknesses so he knows firsthand what it's like to face the struggles that we have. So have you lived in poverty in your life? Well, Jesus knows that firsthand. We actually know after he was born, eight days later, his parents took him to the temple to dedicate him as as they were commanded in the law. And the particular sacrifice that they offered at the temple was the one denoted for poor people. Okay, so he, he grew up in poverty. He knows poverty. He knows hunger firsthand. He knows exactly what it's like to be exhausted. Remember the famous story where he meets the Samaritan woman at the well? Why is he there? Because he is utterly exhausted. He's tired. He knows what that's like to be physically overwhelmed. He knows what it's like to be rejected. So he's, he's walking to Jerusalem for that final visit to Jerusalem. And he sees the city and he weeps over it because they've rejected him. He knows what it feels like to be rejected by people you care deeply about. He knows what it's like to suffer loss. He wept when Lazarus, his friend, died. He, he experienced the full breath of that loss. He knows what it's like to feel afraid. On the night before he died in the Garden of Gethsemane, he, yes, God, was so fearful that he sweat drops of blood. He knows what it's like to feel pain. When when he was whipped and tortured before being put on the cross, he, he didn't get some kind of supernatural morphine. Like He felt that completely. He knows what intense physical pain feels like. He knows what it's like to feel abandoned because everybody abandoned him. They all ran away on all his friends that he invested his whole life in. They deserted him. So he knows abandonment. He knows what it's like to die. Because he he did. He knows that firsthand. And so because on this Christmas we get to celebrate present. That God is present with us. What we're doing is we're celebrating the fact that our God understands exactly what it's like to be human firsthand. And that's really a remarkable thing. When you think about what, what is so compelling about Christianity. Versus all those other religions out there. One of the most compelling things is that the God we worship chose to become one of us. 
So we worship a God who is transcendent. He is almighty. He is sovereign. He sees all things for all time. I mean, he has all these amazing God-like attributes, and yet he freely chose to become one of us and experience firsthand all the pain and suffering of this life. And as a result, I mean, how amazing is, is the last verse that we read? He's ready to give you help at any moment. From firsthand knowledge, he's ready to help you. And what other religion promises that? None that I know of. They either have a God who's so transcendent, he's completely removed from your pain, or limited, awful gods who are just like us, how could they help anyone? We have a God who is both mighty God, mighty and transcendent, and yet who chose to experience life fully with us. So he understands it firsthand so he can give us help whenever we need it. That really is amazing what Jesus chose to do. So that's the fifth word, present, to be with us, among us, now and always. Sixth and final word that God has for us this Christmas is the word forever. So look with verse 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So Jesus is going to rule on David's throne forevermore. From then on and forever. And, and the point is that on that first Christmas that we're celebrating, Christmas 2,000 years ago, that was the beginning of Jesus' eternal kingdom. That, that was day one. He, he began his eternal kingdom. Now, right now, we don't see that kingdom clearly. Because our king is on his throne in heaven, and his people, his followers, are uh, kind of undercover here on earth among everyone else. But, but the kingdom of Jesus has already begun and it is growing and it will continue to grow forever. Isaiah says there's going to be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. The point is that Jesus' kingdom is going to be expanding forever. Whatever we're doing in heaven for all eternity, Jesus' kingdom is still growing because that's what Isaiah said. It will always be growing and getting better. A billion years from now, Jesus' kingdom is still going to be growing and getting better. And so when you think about that first Christmas, that was the beginning of your better forever. That's really when it began, when Jesus took on human flesh and became one of us. That was the beginning of your better forever as part of the never-ending kingdom of Jesus, the always-growing, always-improving kingdom of Jesus. That was the beginning of this amazing light and gladness and peace that Jesus will begin. So when we think about Christmas, these are our key words. Humiliation, that's kind of the most surprising one there. Most people don't associate that. Light, gladness, peace, present, forever. That's what Christmas ultimately is about. You can kind of put them together into a, into a sentence, into one kind of summary idea. The point of Christmas is that Jesus loves you so much, he chose to be born in humility so that he could become your light and your gladness and your peace, God present with you forever. That's, that's the good news that we celebrate. And, and we know kind of where this is going, right? We know that Christmas wasn't the end of the story. That's where we started this morning. We know that this amazing God is going to choose to die for us and then rise from the dead for us so that we can be with him forever. That's the good news that we call the gospel. Christmas is a great time to share that good news. Just so you're clear when you get a chance to share it with a friend or a family member. How are you going to share the gospel? You focus on the idea that it's a free gift. 
That, that's the thing that's so amazing to people. That's what they don't get. You don't come to church for the gospel. <laughs> you don't come to the church to get this stuff. No, it's a free gift. God simply offers it to you. So you want people to understand Jesus, God's son, chose to become one of us, to live the perfect life we could not, and then to die for us and rise from the dead so that he could offer us light and gladness and peace forever as a free gift. And all you got to do is say what? Yes. Yes, I, I want that. I believe that that's for me. When, when you receive, when your child reaches out his or her hands and receives a present from you at Christmas, that's exactly what it looks like. You're just saying, yes, God, I, I believe you're offering me this through, through Jesus. I want that. And so if, if you haven't received that yet, if there's something that's kept you from believing that Jesus really did come, that he really did live for you, die for you, rise for you, that eternal life is a free gift, if there's anything holding you back, please, will you come talk to me or someone else here this morning? Talk to one of us. We want to help you find the greatest gift ever that you can have at Christmas. Now, for those of you who have received that greatest gift of all, let's get practical for a moment. How can we keep these six words in front of us in the midst of all the the stress and busyness of the holiday season? Well, my encouragement to you isn't to throw out all the traditions of Christmas. It's instead to intentionally reconnect them. So take all those traditions that you already celebrate at Christmas among your family and with your kids and reconnect them with these six key words. So let me just give you some examples. This is nowhere near an exhaustive list. I'm sure many of you will come up with more creative ideas than I have, but let me share a few ideas with you. So how do you help your kids understand this concept of humiliation? Well, for many of you, you're going to set up a manger scene or you're going to see a manger scene at some point. One of the greatest values of a manger scene when it's set up is that you get to tell your kids that's not what it actually looked like. Because chances are your manger scene is really pretty. Because like you use it as decorations, you put it out, it's all shiny. You know, precious moments. It's all beautiful. You get this moment to say, kids, we love looking at this. It's so pretty, but it's a good moment to remember that's not what it was actually like. Now, it wasn't beautiful. It was stinky. It, it wasn't lovely. It was dirty. You, your God chose to identify with the poor, with the rejected, with the ridiculed, with the ashamed. He chose to become a, a, a poor one of us. He was born in a, in a filthy manger. That's how much he loves you. So use those manger scenes as kind of a teaching moment to teach as beautiful as they are here. It wasn't actually like that. And you get to talk to your kids about the, the, the humiliation that Jesus chose. Remember, that's the key. He didn't have to be born there. No other human gets to say that. He got to pick his birthplace and time. And he chose that out of love for us. So that's one way that you can get humiliation kind of front and center in your mind. Use that manger scene as a teaching tool. Second, light. I would assume at some point, if you have kids, you're going to put them in the car and you're going to drive around the neighborhood. And you're going to look at all these pretty lights, and that's an excellent idea. That's a good moment for you in the car to just, just talk to your kids. Why do we do this? I mean, it's a lot of expense to put up all these lights. It's a lot of effort. It's a lot of trouble. Why do we do it? Well, some people just do it for kind of the party of it. We do it because we want to show the world that we believe that the ultimate light has come. And one of the things that's really cool is as it's really dark out at night and you're driving around, you can kind of, kind of show your kids, what would it be like if none of these lights were here? Not the street lights, not, not the house lights, none of these. It'd be really hard to drive right now. I would have hit something, right? Because we need light to get home. 
We need light to lead us. And so you can help your kids understand the importance of, of Jesus being our light. Uh, another example, gladness. Uh, at some point, you'll sing joy to the world. And that is your moment to reflect on the fact that Jesus is your joy. And even if you're not feeling that, it's okay, you will. That Jesus is our ultimate source of joy. Uh, peace, how do you represent that? I'm trying to think, well, what, what is stealing our peace at the moment? Uh, for a lot of us, it's just we're paying too much attention to the news, right? So we watch the news and we see all the crazy mess going on in Washington and it fills us with stress. You know, at some point, I would encourage you during the holiday season, um, turn off Fox News or MSNBC, whatever you watch, and instead put on, Netflix has like this fireplace program that you can put up and it's great because there's like little kittens and dogs and bunnies that like jump around on the screen. And I promise you that 30 minutes watching that is better for your soul than 30 minutes tuning in to MSNBC or Fox News. So at some point, hit pause on all the news and watch the fireplace scene. And when you do that, let me encourage you to pray for a moment and give thanks. So what, what you're giving thanks for is in the midst of a whole lot of political mess in our world right now, Jesus is still on the throne. That, that didn't change. At no point in the last thousand years did that change. Jesus is still on the throne and he's bringing such perfect peace that all this mess is going to be a distant memory. So wipe it all away. Okay, so put on the fireplace scene and give thanks for a little bit that Jesus is on the throne. Another idea. Present. Well, this one's convenient. So those presents, plural, that we give one another can be a moment to remind one another that, that what this ultimately is symbolizing is the presence of God with us. Our God is present with us. That's the greatest gift ever. So I would encourage you, maybe you can do it before your kids open their presents. I can't because they're only focused on one thing at that moment. So maybe it's after. Maybe it's they've opened their presents, you've eaten some food, and it's time to talk. Don't let that moment go by and not explain why we give presents. It's not why the world gives presents. We give presents to remind each other this is a small shadow of the greatest present of all that God gave us on that first Christmas, which is Jesus with us. Finally, the word forever. Well, I encourage you, December 26th is going to come and your kids are going to be bummed out because it's a whole other year. Uh, I encourage you to remind your kids this is not the last Christmas they're going to celebrate. Actually, as best as I understand from Scripture, you have an infinite number of Christmases ahead of you. So I, I don't think Christmas is a uniquely earthly holiday. I, I, like I said, I think that, that the joy of Christmas is really that future Christmas when you celebrate it with Jesus himself. And so I think December 26th is an excellent opportunity to remind ourselves, yeah, that, that was fun. The most fun one is still coming, and there's going to be an infinite number of them. We're going to get to celebrate the joy and jubilation of Christmas with Jesus himself for billions of years. That's the joy that we have as we think about Christmas. So I want to pray for us that God would help us to focus on Jesus this season. And then I want us to sing O Holy Night. So um, I want us to actually put this into practice. And I want us to sing uh, a traditional Christmas song. But I want us to see kind of past all the, the trappings of Christmas and think about the theology that it states. I want you to think about what it means that Jesus showed up. 2,000 years ago. So join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we praise you for that holy night when your son was born. 
We praise you, Lord Jesus, that you who are the infinite Son of God, who created the universe with the mere spoken word, that you chose to come and live among us, to to be enwrapped in human flesh and experience all the stresses and pains and fatigues and temptations of this life. You did that for us, and, and you lived a perfect life that we couldn't live, and then you died for us. You were beaten for us. You took our sin upon yourself and died in our place and then rose from the dead so that we could have life forever. We praise you and thank you for that, Jesus. Lord God, we confess to you that that it's really hard to keep that vision central in our focus this time of year. There is so much going on. There's so much to do. There is so much that distracts us. There's so much noise out there at this time of year. We, We pray for your help, We pray that, especially for us in the room who who are parents or who are helping disciple or mentor younger believers, we pray, help us to find ways to connect the, the traditions of Christmas that we enjoy with these deeper theological truths. We pray, help us to find creative ways to instruct our kids about how good and great Jesus is. We pray that whatever happens in the next few weeks in our families and in our town, we pray that at the end of this Christmas holiday, that we would have truly recognized how good and wonderful Jesus is and truly have worshipped him. We thank you for this morning as we get to gather as a family and sing your praises. We pray, help us to do that as we sing this song, O Holy Night. We pray, draw us close to you, Father, for the glory of your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. You guys will stand up. Let's sing this together.